Hey, Travel Tales listeners, it's your host, Aislinn Green. We're working hard on season three, which launches later this summer. But in the meantime, I wanted to share our new podcast with you. It's called Unpacked by Afar. Have you ever faced a travel situation that left you wondering if you did the right thing? Well, yes, us too. In Unpacked by Afar, we dig into those ethical dilemmas. Each week, our hosts explore questions like, what's the deal with zero-waste travel? Or, I know I shouldn't ride an elephant, but can I swim with dolphins? How can I possibly identify humane animal experiences? In the preview you're about to hear, host Paige McClanahan asks, do we really need something called revenge travel? The quick answer is no. As she unpacks the trend, she talks with experts in the fields of responsible tourism and shares tips for exploring with empathy and humor. All right, here's the preview. I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. You can subscribe to Unpacked by Afar wherever you get your podcasts. This is Unpacked by Afar. I'm Paige McClanahan, an American travel journalist based in France, and today we're talking about revenge. Well, sort of. Like most people in the world, I spent most of the past two years hunkered down at home. And now I'm traveling again. A couple of weeks ago, I got back from a fascinating trip to Israel and Palestine, which reminded me of just how magical and eye-opening travel can be. It seems like so many of us are in the same boat, right? We're so eager to get back out there, which is amazing and something to celebrate. But that said, you know, there's one aspect of our return to travel that I'm really having mixed feelings about. Revenge travel. Maybe you've heard of this, It's a term that first appeared in 2021, and it's been spreading ever since. Revenge travel is about people making up for lost time. Maybe they're rushing to take a vacation just because a destination finally opened up, or because they finally feel comfortable traveling overseas again. It's the idea that travelers want to take revenge on COVID, or at least the time we lost to it, by jumping on a plane and rushing off to all of those places that we've been dreaming of for so long. Now, I can certainly empathize with that impulse. There are just so many places I want to go. But there's something about the phrase revenge travel that, you know, I could do without. Here in France, I live with my family in a little alpine village that is hugely reliant on tourism. We get tons of hikers in the summer, skiers in the winter, and cheese lovers year-round. Because believe me, it is always cheese season in this part of the world. Living here over the past four years, I've seen just how much the presence or the absence of travelers affects people who live in our community in ways that are really good, really bad, and everything in between. So when I think about traveling right now, I don't like to think about getting revenge for time lost. I want to take time to understand what's at stake in the communities that I'm going to visit. Especially given that, coming out of the pandemic, some of these places are more vulnerable than ever. And at the risk of sounding naive, 
I really want to do my best to do some good while I'm out in the world. So come along with me in this episode as I explore how we can all support the communities we visit and have those fulfilling travel experiences we've all been craving. And I promise it's possible to do both. We define responsible tourism primarily as ways of traveling which make better places for people to live in and better places for people to visit. And the order of those two objectives is quite important because if you're going to make tourism better, it's really got to be better for the host and better for the guest. That's Harold Goodwin, the CEO of the Responsible Tourism Partnership, an organization that helps governments and businesses make sure that travel works for everyone. I asked Harold what the negative impacts of tourism can be, and he described the situation in Barcelona, a city that became maybe a little too famous for its crowds before the pandemic. The main negative impacts there, I guess, would be crowding in places that the local community wants to use. So crowding is one issue. The behaviour of tourists who are at leisure in a place where other people are working, and people at leisure perhaps have a tendency to consume more alcohol than when they're working. Um, there are impacts on, uh, on the sites themselves, just in terms of physical damage from trampling and people brushing against things, all of which have an impact crowding of public transport and perhaps the worst example in Barcelona or in some ways perhaps the worst thing in Barcelona was the impact that it had on the ownership of property so that a lot of what had been rented accommodation went to Airbnb or was converted to licensed flat rentals all of which squeeze out local communities who then cannot necessarily find somewhere to live. Oh yes, the old Airbnb dilemma. Last summer, I traveled to Barcelona to write a news story about the city's efforts to regulate Airbnb, which is a topic that inspires a lot of strong opinions in the city. I interviewed the deputy mayor, city planners, Airbnb officials, as well as locals who rely on the income they earn as hosts to be able to pay their own rent. In doing that reporting, I was struck by just how hard the local government was working to respond to their citizens' concerns. Harold says that's one of the key factors in making sure that travel is good for everyone. Citizens need to speak up. Governments need to listen. He pointed to a great example of that kind of civic engagement in Kerala in southern India. So this part of India is known for its palm-lined beaches, mangrove forests, and tea, coffee, and spice plantations. Kerala is also home to a vast network of lagoons and barrier islands, similar to the bayous of Louisiana, where visitors can spend the night on a houseboat or go exploring by canoe. Kerala is so beautiful that it attracts more than a million foreign visitors each year, and a whole lot more from within India. But for a long time, tourism wasn't working for the local communities. There were two issues. One was the pollution that came from large numbers of tourists going out on boats on the, on the backwaters. And inevitably, perhaps, but certainly it wasn't stopped, people dropping litter into the, uh, into the backwaters. 
so the polluting effect of litter particularly. Um, that was one big issue. But the, the bigger issue was the fact that the communities were not benefiting economically. Because although some of them might have got employment in the hotels, there was a lot of uh, bringing in of labour from outside, already skilled labour being brought in to, to perform the various tasks in a hotel. Uh, but also they weren't purchasing locally for their supplies. So they weren't purchasing from local farmers, for example. They weren't purchasing local crafts for the soft furnishings in the hotels. Uh, and they weren't providing any opportunity or any way of encouraging the tourists to leave the sort of hotel resort and go out and spend money in the local community. In 2008, local leaders decided to take action. They designed four projects in four communities. Each project tested a different way to make tourism better for the people who lived there. One of those pilot projects in a village called Kamarakoram was a huge success. So over the past several years, local leaders have expanded the lessons from that village to communities across the region. Now that's been completely turned around in Kerala with a big statewide initiative. So that's an example of what governments working with local communities can do. And what happened there was that the, the state government of Kerala worked very closely with the village councils across Kerala. So what was the secret to that village's success? Harold says there were three key elements. First, they created cooperatives made up of farmers and artists who would supply resorts and hotels with food, furniture, and art. Second, they created something called Village Life Experiences. The program invited residents to earn an income by teaching visitors to weave with coconut leaves, to fish in the traditional manner, or to take part in whatever the locals wanted to share. And finally, the local leaders created restaurants and craft markets where locals could come together to sell their food and their crafts directly to tourists. So that was a pretty impressive turnaround. But hearing Harold describe all of this, I wondered, what lessons or principles from those experiences can we apply to all of our trips? Harold says that first, we should choose a destination that is ready to welcome travelers. It has to have the infrastructure to manage tourism. So that means maybe looking for a place that has a tourist board or a place where the natural areas have parking lots and bathrooms and marked trails. It means trying not to get too far off the beaten path. Then we should think about how we're going to get there and the impact that our travel will have on the climate. By taking fewer, longer trips, Harold says, we can get a lot more bang for our carbon buck. But it doesn't end there. So now you've arrived at the destination. Now the question is, how do you maximize your benefit to the local economy? And I say there are basically three things. Choose to stay in locally owned accommodation where you can. Choose to purchase things which are being produced locally. What's available in the local market is often a very good guide to that. And in terms of your behavior, don't do anything abroad that you wouldn't want your mother to know about. It's a matter, really, of just trying to make sure that you fit in and that you don't conflict. And remember that it's their place, not yours. That sentiment really rings true for me. As a resident of a village that gets hundreds of thousands of travelers every year, 
I know what it's like to feel as though your home is being taken over by visitors. On the flip side, I'm also really grateful for tourists who come to our area because the money and the energy they bring is exactly what makes life possible and fun in our remote little corner of the Alps. Harold also reminded me how important it is to be respectful about how and when we take photographs. Asking permission never hurts. He also says he likes to read about local politics, history, or culture before he goes to a new place. It's like that old NBC slogan, the more you know. So yes, understanding our impact on a place takes some work, but it's not like we have to write a thesis before we go. We can simply ask ourselves, does the hotel where I'm staying hire people from the local community? Does its restaurant source its ingredients from the area? Who is benefiting from that canoe trip or that market tour I'm about to take? How do residents feel about Airbnb around here? Even if we just pick one question to explore before we go, that can make a big difference. That was a preview of Unpacked by Afar. You can hear the full episode and more from Unpacked wherever you get your podcasts.